0: James Hudson Taylor was a man who lived um, about 150 years ago. Um, by all accounts, um, his own and others, he wasn't terribly clever, wasn't terribly gifted, he wasn't terribly um, handsome to look at. He was often physically ill. He suffered from depression, but he, he d- deeply loved Jesus and he was um, passionate about serving Him and submitting his whole life to the Lord and living in trust and dependence on God. And he also was passionate about sharing Jesus with other people. It broke his heart, the thought of parts of the world where millions of people were living and dying and passing into a Christless eternity. And from a young age, he, he prayed for, for the lost. Um, and God particularly put the nation of China on his heart. And as he prayed for China and for Christ's kingdom to come in China, he more and more felt that God was saying, um, you are the answer to your own prayers. You are to go to China and be my witness to the, the hundreds of millions there who do not know me. And so Chia, um, Hudson Taylor at a young age, 21 years of age, got on a boat and took the six-month journey to China. And God used this, this uh, man who, in worldly terms, wasn't anything extraordinary in extraordinary ways to reveal himself to, to countless Chinese people and to build his church. And Mr. Alan Cousins, who actually represents the, um, the Africa Inland Mission, but is very generous with his time and wants people everywhere in the world to know about Jesus, has been doing a a drama based on the diaries of Hudson Taylor. So he's going to do a short scene or two from his drama, and these are the very words of Hudson Taylor which are taken from his um, diary, and I think they're, they're very challenging and speak to us today about
1: our own passion for mission. Dear Lord, my gracious Savior, I beg of you, give me some work, some task that I may do for you to show my gratitude, to give myself up and work for you alone. No matter how trying or how trivial, give me something with which you might be pleased. I shall never forget that moment as I gave myself unreservedly over to God, put myself, my life, my friends, my family, my all upon the altar. A deep solemnity came upon my soul. The presence of God became unutterably real. And though only a child of seventeen, I remember stretching myself upon the ground and lying silent before Him, filled with unspeakable awe and with unspeakable joy. And never shall I forget the feeling that came upon me then. I felt myself to be in the very presence of God, entering an unbreakable covenant with the Almighty. I seemed to want to withdraw my promise, but could not, for something seemed to say, your prayers are answered, your conditions are accepted. And from that time, the conviction has never left me that I was called to China. My name is James Hudson Taylor. That was my experience at seventeen years of age. Only recently converted, I had been wrestling with doubts and with fears. And then I suddenly saw His grace is sufficient and the sacrifice of Christ, all I ever needed for life and for salvation he had paid the whole price. And so I owed God my very life. I began to read voraciously of China and to learn the written language, to study medicine. I tested my faith, relying upon the Lord, never displaying my financial needs to any save to Him. And He always provided, thus confirming my call But before I could finish my medical studies, the call to China came. I left the woman I loved behind, hoping she might join me later. And so, there I was on the Dumfries, parting with my family probably forever. I had never known what a sacrifice it would be until standing on the deck of the ship that would be my home for the next six months and seeing my mother and sister Amelia wave goodbye, filled with all emotion. The cry of anguish wrung from my mother's heart, it went through me like a knife. I'd never known so fully until that moment what it meant that God so loved the world He gave His only Son. It was an eventful journey. Captain, pull the sail around. Dear Father, save us from these waves. Bail out. Bail out. We're going to hit. We're going to hit. By an inch. We missed by an inch. After six months, we arrived in China. I stepped into this unknown land, which I soon discovered to be at civil war. But my heart felt as though it would burst from its place, as though there was not space to contain it. But I did not know anyone, and I did not speak the language. Somehow I made my way to the consulate." Huh. So, what are these, huh? Your letters of introduction, well, let me see if I can locate these fellows for you. Shuck. He'll be no good to you. He left here must be two years ago, huh? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Tozer. He'll be even less good to you, Taylor. Dad. Yeah. Walter Medhurst. Well, you're in luck, for you'll find him in the London Missionary Society house. Or perhaps you won't. For you know what these missionaries are like. They're always out. What? Post? No, the post room closed an hour ago. You'll have to come back tomorrow. I so longed to read something from Mother or from Sister Amelia or from Elizabeth Sissons, the woman I loved. And without post, from the CES The Chinese Evangelization Society, who had sent me out, I could not withdraw any funds. And Medhurst, predictably, was out. And so began my first six months in China. I studied diligently until I could share the gospel. I moved from the missionary compound into Chinese quarters. But lack of sleep here together with my decision to eat as the Chinese do, assaulted my body. But it was my soul that was the most assaulted to witness the murdered body of a newborn female infant lying exposed in the city drains, to hear the, the, the cries of the young girls, their feet being bound to make them smaller, and to witness the vast sums of money that even the very poorest were spending on worshiping their ancestors. My dear Chinese friends, I am come as your servant, and to plead with you, turn from your ancestors You worship them, but they do not hear. Turn instead to the living God who hears and who answers and who alone is worthy of our worship. They were not ungrateful, either for the message or for the medical treatments. Some years later, I was speaking on one occasion to a crowd. I'm so pleased to speak with you of the one who declares himself the way and the truth and the life. By coming through him and through him alone, we may experience that very life that God intended for us. Excuse me. Excuse me, may I take the stand? My name is Ni Yong Fa. My name is Ni Yong Fa. I am leader of the Buddhist group here. We have always rejected idolatry, but we have never yet discovered the truth, though we have given ourselves over to searching for it. But today, I have heard the truth. From this time, I can stop searching, for I believe in Jesus. But I have a question. For how long already have you had this message of good news about Jesus in England? I had to tell him it was several hundred years, but my father… He spent twenty years searching for the truth and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? I couldn't answer. His words cut me to the quick. But it became such joy to hear Ni Yong Fa preach the gospel with clarity and with compassion and to see many Chinese turn to him here in Swatow, to witness the merchants, more debauched even than the residents, moved to tears as they saw their sin, and then discovering this life that was theirs in Christ. Oh, such joy!
0: Thank you, Alan. I think we should give him a round of applause.
2: Good evening, nice to be back with you. If you weren't here this morning, I'm Jared. I lived in China for 10 years with my wife and family. And uh, it's great to have a chance to share tonight. And, uh, <laughs> it's great to hear uh, that testimony from Peter and Paula. It's really quite encouraging to hear that. And it helps us understand the role that God has given us as welcome us, as those who can effectively witness for Jesus Christ to all different nations by being here and being open here in Belfast. So my goal tonight is really just trying to open our eyes a little bit to what the church in China, what China is like today because as I journey around the country I discover that most people have an old paradigm, an old understanding that's, that's now frankly out of date. Uh, Because we still think missionaries look like this. No, I'm sure we don't. That was the Hudson Taylor day, how they used to look. The church has changed rapidly. Uh, Hudson Taylor used to describe the missionaries as a scaffold around which or in which the church grows. And when the scaffold is ripped away, the church should stand. And the scaffold was ripped away in 1951 when all the missionaries had to leave the country. But the church stood through the fires of persecution of the Cultural Revolution, the church stood. Yes, it was underground. It was, it was hidden. It was illegal. It was not allowed to be public, but the church stood. And at the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, when Chairman Mao died, there were still 750,000 Christians in China, which is a small number given the size of the population. But then there was this unprecedented church growth that took place in a phase that we would call the early period of the Chinese church, between 1970 to 1990. What I find as I talk to Christians in the UK is our understanding of the church in China really fits in this model. It fits from people who've read books by Brother Yun, the heavenly man, who was big news here about 10 years ago. That describes what the church was like. And it's not like that anymore, it's changed. Back then, China was largely a rural country. You know, 20% of the people of China in 1980 lived in cities. Today, it's over 50%. The church looked very much like this. Small groups of largely illiterate, not-so-well-educated farmers and rural people gathering with a great fervency for the Word of God They had very short short of Bibles, so they were short of money to buy Bibles, and Bibles weren't really available, so they would hand-copy Bibles and circulate them around their villages. The style of church leadership was what they called big family style. So in the same way that dad is the king in his family, okay, maybe not in our culture anymore, we sadly say, but dad is king in the family. The pastor was king in the church. What the pastor said, you did. And it was a big top-down style of leadership, very authoritarian. Um, The core values of that church was a very strong theology of suffering because they'd come through the fires of persecution. And this is a church that knows how to suffer for the gospel. They were very focused upon spiritual formation. Many of these things are good things. This is not a Westerner criticizing, it's an observation but they had a very strong focus on spiritual formation, but there wasn't a systematic approach to training or teaching or discipling or a holistic approach to whole-life ministry. So holism was lacking. And there wasn't any long-term plan because, you know, the persecution could start again tomorrow. Arrests of the pastors could happen in the next few weeks. How can you plan for the future? And so it was very much the here and the now. As I say, the church is changing because China is changing. I'm going to give you very briefly three trends for China that deeply impact both society and the church. And this first is urbanization. 50% of the population now live in cities. Look at this graph. This is a graph that goes right the way back to 1950, and the top line is the total population of China The red red line is the urban population of China and the blue line, the rural. And you can see those lines intersect in about 2011, actually, where suddenly, urban population is greater than rural population. You know, for you and I, graphs maybe don't move us, but we're talking about more than 300 million people moving from the countryside to the city. And if you've ever been to China and wondered why it's always a building site, That's why. Because you've got to find somewhere to live. 300 million people are moving into the cities. For a church that's largely rural, suddenly the people are gone and they're in the cities. And you can go to countless villages around China today and you've got very old people and the very young children. And the whole of the middle segment has gone. They're gone. They're in the cities. They're either working or they're studying in the cities. The The social change in China is incredible. The equivalent to this urban transition is the whole of Germany, France, the UK, Netherlands and Switzerland moving into the city. It's that kind of population. And so we're going to see in 2025 an urban population of 900 million people as the trend continues. With more than 220 cities over a million people. China today has more than 95. Europe's got 33 cities over a million people and the urban economy is going to be the greatest representative of GDP. This matters so much. There's a huge trend in China, this urbanization. We need to understand that when we meet Chinese students who are coming from uh, East Asia to live amongst us, they are going to go back to big cities, mega cities. I studied Chinese in the city of Xi'an. Oh, it's not a very big city. There's only five million people there. Five million people and it's not a big city. Beijing, Shanghai, 18, 19, 20 million people. That matters to your discipleship. It matters to how you're going to live your life. It matters in how you find your fellowship and and what the church looks like in that context. The second big trend, economic growth. We know the economic growth of China is one of the success stories of the last 20, 25 years for a country to have double digit growth domestic product increase in gross domestic product GDP for the last ten years is incredible. You know, things are a bit sad now in China today because GDP growth is only about five percent. Western European countries dream of getting to two or three percent. China's at five percent, and that's not a success. The Chinese Communist Party, the government system, is responsible for lifting more people out of poverty than any government in history before. And sometimes it might be good to give credit to them for that. Many hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty. By country, if you put the European Union together, which is not a political statement, but the European Union, USA, third economy would be China. Very soon, about before 2050, Before 2025, the Chinese economy is predicted to be larger than the U.S., the largest economy in the world. But, you know, this economic growth comes at a real price. And if you do spend time in China, you'll very quickly realize the environmental cost of such rapid urbanization, industrialization, and economic growth. The people of China, as they get wealthier, also get more disaffected, with not having clean water to drink, with not having clean air to breathe, with not having safe food. These are the three major concerns of people in China today. Can I trust what I'm eating? Can I trust what I'm drinking? And why can't I breathe the air? The air is not safe. So there's a cost there as well. And this environmental awareness, this growing middle class that is now starting to say to the government, we are not happy with the state of our water, food, air, we are not happy, is leading to an increase in the social protests in China. Now, we don't hear very much about that in the West because China is very effective at keeping its news internal and, and monitoring what goes out. But there is a huge growth in our day of something that political scientists call civil society. This is the third trend. The growth in non-governmental organizations, the growth in collective civil action. You and I take this for granted in the UK, that there are all these different organizations, be they Red Cross or Action Aid or whatever they may be, or even our welfare state, we take it for granted. It doesn't exist in China. Charities have not existed in China. But that's changing. It's changing because the people, there's a rising middle class and the people are becoming wealthier and they're becoming more concerned for people outside of their immediate family circle. And in a sense, the aha, the wake-up moment for China was this event. Does anyone recognize what this might have been? The earthquake in 2008 in Sichuan where 90,000 people were killed. And many hundreds of thousands left homeless. This was almost like a wake-up moment for China. And suddenly, over the first weekend after the earthquake, there were people from all the major cities who were packing their cars, their sports utility vehicles, their four-wheel drive Jeeps, with blankets and water and food and clothing and driving to Sichuan. Which is a bit like, for some of them, driving to the south of Italy to go and support their countrymen who they never met, who they had felt no responsibility for. Suddenly they went, and do you know who the vast majority of the people who did that were? Christians in the church. Three months after the earthquake, when we were visiting Sichuan and spending time with these NGOs that had mushroomed up overnight, the people who were still there after the press had gone, after the world had turned its eyes away, the people still there were the Chinese Christians, the church. They were the ones who continued to serve, befriending orphans, seeking to help the government build sustainable villages, giving um, counseling and bereavement counseling and helping the widows and helping the orphans. It was incredible to see that. And it was, no- it was a new thing. It was a new thing. And this... Civil action, if you like, this civil society has grown up rapidly in China. Everything in China happens quickly. Grown up rapidly in China. And one of the reasons for its rapid growth goes hand in hand with the rise of the Internet. 1997, 600,000 Chinese were online. 2014, 641 million were online, with 90% using a phone. Now, why does that matter? Because everywhere you go in China, as a Chinese person, when you see something that's not just, when you see corruption, when you see pollution, when you see oppression, now you click, you photograph it, and you instantly upload it to the social media. And it goes viral around the country until the government can see it and then close it down. So there's almost an increased accountability of officials to the people that's never been there before because of the rise of the Internet. And this, this attack on corruption in government is linked to this. So you see these officials who are all wearing different Rolex watches every day of the week. And they used to get away with it, but now, photograph, 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 put it online. And the guy's sacked. The guy is taken to court. The guy is prosecuted because of his discovered corruption. The church needs to respond to this. So, How is the church responding to these three major trends? Let me bring you up to date with what's been going on. The church, too, is changing. It's moving from a rural church to being an urban church, from a farmer, less educated background to a more educated, intellectual background. The church looks more like this today, with outdoor services. When the government closes the church down in Beijing, as happened four years ago in the November... The church said, if you're going to close our church down, we're going to meet in the open air, which is unheard of. You can't do that in China. But they did in the snow. They had a PA outside in the center of Beijing, and the government piled in and arrested all the leaders, because you can't do that. Religion can only take place in a registered building legally in China. To go and do it in the park was a real challenge to government authority, but they did it. They did that. The church then was given a movie theater in which to meet. This is not a church that's registered with the government. This old old um, dichotomy between the registered official three-self church, it was called, and what we've come to call the house church, that still exists, but it's not as clear-cut as that anymore. There are many big house churches. You hear the word house church and you think 25, 30 people sitting in your living room. House churches have got ten to 15,000 people in them. They meet in lots of houses, and not just houses, but movie theaters and shopping malls and big restaurants and Starbucks in the middle of Beijing. That's what a house church looks like. We shouldn't call them house churches. We should probably call them independent churches. That's what they're asking to be called, independent churches. This church has changed, and the leadership structure is much younger and flatter. The, the leaders are... Uh, they have these less hierarchical structures. There's a greater focus upon systematic training. There's international exposure. They're not short of theological training or theological books. 85% of the pastors in the three-self church are evangelical. They don't need the same level of theological training that we used to think. And they have a very clear vision, purpose, and strategy with a consequent rise in focus on indigenous mission. As the church in China grows and matures, it's saying, what has God got for us? And you've heard before of this vision that the, some of the members of the church have got to go back to Jerusalem with the gospel, to go through the lands between China and, and Jerusalem, sharing the gospel as they go. What a vision. What a vision. All those Muslim lands to go through. The Chinese church has a burden for doing that. I shared this morning that I've been at a meeting three years ago with a group of house house church pastors and one of them said this to me the church of the early years was a village church and the gospel had to move from the village to the city now the church is taking root in the city and the gospel has to move from the city to the rest of the country this transformation of the church from a largely rural church to a largely urban church is God's plan seeing the sovereignty of God, transforming China from a rural to an urban nation and from a rural, poor, less powerful church into actually a strong force now in China, a strong force for change. So we see this changing church to the present day. We would like to suggest that we no longer talk about three self-churches and house churches, but we talk about a state church. And a free church, or an independent church. The government's not saying that. That's my observation from talking to these house church pastors. Before I finish, there are three common questions I'm always asked about China. And I only had 10 minutes to speak last night, and I've got 20 tonight. So I've got a chance to answer them now. People always say, is there still persecution in China today? It sounds like you're talking about a country that's free Freedom in China is a different concept from freedom that we expect. I talk about the freedom in China being like a bird in a cage. You're free depending on how big your cage is. And the size of the cage that restricts you is different depending where you live. There are parts of China today where it's very tight. Places that are politically sensitive such as Tibet or Xinjiang in the far west. It's very tight there because of political sensitivity. But there are other places where it's much more open, and you can be freely Christian, and you can have these independent churches meeting with crosses on the roof, and nobody bothers. But we saw, didn't we, in the last few years, images like this in the southeast of China, crosses being removed and churches being demolished. It can change very fast. It might vary, the freedom, depending on the area that you live, but it also depends on who's in charge. And that changes rapidly. And so you're never fully free. You never know when the next wave of crackdowns will come. So there is persecution in China, but there is also freedom. China's a paradox. Something of it, something is true everywhere in China. It's such a big country. Is there still a conflict between the three self and the house church? I've answered that. Think about it as a state church and a free church. There is still some suspicion between the two groups. But this state church now is largely evangelical. It's well taught. The pastors are well educated and not so controlled largely than they used to be. But the third question I'm often asked, and I mentioned this this morning too, is, well, is there still a need for overseas mission to China? If the church is doing so well, then surely we don't need to go there anymore. Surely it's time for the church in China to send to to us here and to that question I say amen that's fantastic wouldn't it be wonderful can you imagine what it would look like to have Chinese co-workers here in your church Chinese people who are called by God to reach out to Belfast to Northern Ireland people wow it's hard to imagine isn't it what would you do what would you do with four Chinese evangelists in your church how would you train them you want to say, well, there's lots of Chinese students here they could work with, but hang on. That's not what they want to do. They're called to bring the gospel to the British people who sent the gospel to them. And there are many churches like that who have got a heart for Germany, a heart for Bradford where Hudson Taylor, at Barnsley where Hudson Taylor was brought up, a heart for London, and they're coming. They're being sent by their church. Are we ready to receive them? Are we ready to work in partnership with the global church, in partnership with Chinese believers to reach people here in Belfast. But right the other side, is there still a role? Is there still a role for Westerners, for other Asian believers, for Africans, for Latin Americans to go to China, to go to other parts of East Asia? Well, emphatically, at this conference I was at, the answer to that is yes, is yes. The church in China is looking for models. I asked them what they needed and I briefly mentioned it this morning. It was a long answer, and I'm just going to put these up. I'm not going to read them for you. I'm sure you're well able to read. The church in China said, this is what we need. This is what we lack. This is what they have said to us. This is what we lack. Anything you can help us with on this list, please come. Please come. But please don't come as our our overseers, or don't come... Arrogantly. Don't come and and lead. Don't come and think you're in charge anymore. We are a maturing church. We want you to work with us. We don't want to work for you. For us, this this is absolute music to our ears. Amen. We want to work in partnership together. And the changing role that OMF and other mission agencies in China have today is this. This is the request of your brothers and sisters in China. If you do come, Please be incarnational. Listen and learn with us. Model how to do it. I work with Muslim people in China. 30 million Muslims in China. You know, when the Chinese church says, we want to go back to Jerusalem with the gospel, I say, that's fantastic. What about the Muslims on your doorstep? And the answer would be, oh, yeah, we can't go to them. They're terrifying. Let's start by learning about Islam on your doorstep. There's a big mosque in Beijing. There are Muslims throughout the country Let's see the Chinese church working together with other churches to reach out to Muslims on their doorstep. And it's wonderful when that happens. But they say to us, would you come live amongst us? Live your life with us so we can learn from all your mistakes and then we won't make any. That's what you said to me. We can learn from all your mistakes and then we won't make any. No, no, you must make your mistakes. We learn from our mistakes or we trust that we do. But they also said this. Please continue to advocate for the overlooked. What did he mean by that? He said, in China, we're very good at student ministry. We're very good at reaching out to people like us, people who are like us. But we don't know what to do about the marginalized, the urban poor, the prostitutes, the widowed, the blind, the deaf, the lame. We don't know how to reach them. We pretend they don't exist. But you in the global church are good at advocating for the overlooked, please do that. And likewise, please continue to act as intercessors, acting like watchmen on the wall, praying for this growing church in China. If this century indeed is going to be the China century, as many watchers say, let's be praying for the church in China. Let's be praying for the government of China. Let's be praying for partnership between the global church and the Chinese church, that together we can work to see the Lord's kingdom come in increasing power in parts of the world. And do your part here in Belfast, welcoming Chinese friends and looking for opportunities to pour your life into them that they may see what it means for you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because your testimony, your witness, is exceedingly powerful and communicates a lot more than dry teaching would communicate. So continue working on this. I'd love to be able to stay for the Thursday night Bible study, the Thursday night um, international group. That would be great. And I hope many of you are involved in that. So I hope that gives you some sort of brief picture of what the church in China, what China looks like today, which will help you in your relationships with other Chinese.
0: Thank you.